0: Thank you. It is so good to uh, to be with you. Uh, I was here last a little over a year ago while the building was being restored. Um, and when I said I was returning, Brandon said, would you, would you like to preach? And I, I said, yes, of course, I'd love to preach. And then when it was too late to change my mind, he said, I'm giving you lamentations too. <laughs> so my uh, apologies for... Um, Well, I'll extend Brandon's apologies for putting um, me up to help us to engage with this text. I come from Oxford, not Oxford, Alabama, um, which if you Google Trinity Church, Oxford, uh, Oxford, Alabama will come, uh, a church in Oxford, Alabama will come very near the top. But I come from Oxford, England. It's a, a wonderful little city. Uh, It's ancient, full of ancient buildings. Of course, it's got some of the finest mines in the world there. It's a very exciting place to be. But uh, for my children, when we came first to Oxford, uh, that wasn't the most exciting thing. One of the most exciting things was that just a few miles south of us is the place where they hold the world championship for poo sticks. Um, How many... People here know the stories of Winnie the Pooh. Uh, Just a smattering. Even though um, uh, many people have seen the the Disney version of Winnie the Pooh. Let me recommend the books. They are even more fun. And um, uh, every child in England reads about Winnie the Pooh. They, They are a wonderful little set of stuffed animals who uh, have their adventures in the 100-acre wood. There is little piglet who is slightly timid but, um, uh, but wonderfully cheerful. There is greedy and endearing Pooh the bear. There is bouncy tigger. Do you know I'm a wonderful tigger? Tiggers are wonderful things. That, um, um, uh, and, and it is a wonderful world that they live in. All their fears are imaginary, especially the heffalump. That they're terrified of, who doesn't really exist. And all their relational problems are small and temporary. All the sadness that they have in the day is, is gone by the end of the day. And then there's the stuffed donkey Eeyore. Eeyore is miserable. His favorite food is thistles. He is sad. He is apathetic, he is a depressive. One day, Tigger bounces him into the river and he's so passive that he hasn't got the energy to get out of the river and he just floats gently down the river in misery. Of course, we're supposed to laugh at Eeyore. He's supposed to be, in some ways, um, um, a figure of fun. But actually, Winnie the Pooh is a fiction it's not the real world. It's an imaginary world. It's a simplified world. It's a, uh, a world that is nice to escape into, but it is a long way from reality. When my wife was a, a student a few years ago now, she started a Winnie the Pooh reading club in her university. And uh, a lot of people came, and they would read the stories. And as we look back on that now, we realize that that was partly because there were a whole lot of young people there who were starting to move out into the real world, who were starting to engage with real issues of pain and relational difficulties and challenges. And for a moment, once a week in the evening, it was just wonderful to retreat back into that little imaginary fictional world. But you see, if we're going to live in the real, real world, we cannot escape into a fiction. Christians, in particular, must live in the real world. It is so easy in our churches to, for, for us to withdraw into this, this nice, comfortable, simple world of our faith and actually abandon any real engagement with real issues in the world. But that kind of faith just won't cut it. That kind of faith just won't keep us going through the real trials and difficulties and the real painful truths of this world. Gary Horgan, the founder of the International Justice Mission, had his eyes opened to the reality of the world when he had to go and report on the aftermath of the massacre in Rwanda in the 1990s in which 800,000 Tutsis were killed in a short but bloody civil war. And in his book, The Good News About Injustice, he describes the mind of the cruel oppressor. Those kinds of people, he says, say, well, fine, if being brutal makes you feel terrible inside, don't do it. But it makes me feel powerful, alive, exhilarated, masterful, so quit whining unless you want to try and stop me. He goes on, this description of a dark Nietzschean world of self-will, a vacuum devoid of moral authority or spiritual resources for good, Used to seem excessively melodramatic to me, but then I got out more. You see, if we have a Winnie the Pooh theology, it will not cut it. And Lamentations is in the Bible, in in part, to open us up to the real world, or at least to, to one aspect of the real world, in which there is real pain, real struggle, real difficulty, real mourning, And so that's what we have to do today, and that's what you're doing throughout the Lent period, is learning to lament, learning to engage with this aspect of what it means to live in the real world. Wasn't it difficult to say thanks be to God after we'd read Lamentations 2? It's tough, but bear with me. Let's see what the Word of God has to say. Verses 1 to 9 say, God is angry. There is emotional language all over the place in Uh, Lamentations 2 verse 1 The Lord, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Verse 2 Without he has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. Verse 2 again, in his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. Verse 3 He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of of israel it is deep emotional language it is violent language verse 1 he has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of israel verse 2 he has swallowed up all the habitations of of jacob verse 2 again he has torn down strongholds verse 2 again he has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers verse 3 he has cut down in fierce anger uh, uh, verse three: he, he has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. Uh, verse four: He has strung his bow against Israel. Verse four again: He has slain. Verse five: He. Notice the repetition here. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid its ruins. In ruins its, its strongholds. This is, this is the language of war. War in part in which God, who should have been the battalion at our right side defending us from evil, has strategically withdrawn. Verse 3, uh, he has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. Enemy was coming against us. We should have had God's protection. And no, God was out of there. And the enemy just, just, just went straight over us and destroyed us says the writer of Lamentations. or, um, But more than that, not only has he withdrawn, he's actually become the enemy. He's bent his bow, verse 4, like an enemy. He has killed all who were delightful. He has poured out his fury like fire. Verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. He's swallowed up Israel. It is both a political and a spiritual attack verse 2 it is against princes um, verse 6 it is against king and priest it is even against the temple itself L- listen to the irony in verse 7 the Lord has scorned his altar disowned his sanctuary he's delivered them into the hands of the enemy the walls of her palaces they raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival you know th- uh, in the great festivals of Israel there was a great great shout and cheer and hubbub going on at the temple as people went up to celebrate God and to worship him. And, and, and um, we're being told that there's a, there's a hubbub, there's a noise coming from the temple. But this time it's not worship. This time it's the screams and cries of those who are being cut down and dying at the feet of the altar. What an irony. There is no one to rule and no one to speak for God. Verse 9, her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. there is no, The law is no more. Her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Does God ever get angry? You see, there are some people who, who fear that God is a nasty, mean, angry God. And Lamentations 2 just confirms their worst fear. They live in fear of this God. And the Bible is really, really clear. God's innate character is not anger. The Bible says God is love from eternity past, in, in, within the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, loved and delighted and enjoyed one another. God's deepest, innermost character is love. And the Bible never says God is anger. But the Bible does say sometimes God is angry. It is his what, what Martin Luther in the Reformation used to call his strange work. It is a characteristic of God that, that, that emerges out of the, the sin and brokenness and rebellion of uh, people and his creation against him. And because he is perfectly holy and perfectly just, there is anger that rises. It is not intrinsic to him, but it is very real. And here it is in, in, in Lamentations too, but it's elsewhere as well. Read the Gospels and you will find Jesus gets angry. A God who is, who, who is a moral God, a God who is compassionate, cannot help but be angry at times. Well, what do you think that God thinks about the Middle East right now? As ISIS kills, maims innocent men, women, and children... Or to take another example, South Sudan, the newest country in the world, has descended into chaos so that there is famine when they could easily produce enough food for themselves. But the sinfulness of human beings has left innocent people starving to death. Do you think God is angry? Or closer to home, that there are... There are unnoticed, unseen injustices which, which, which our cultures perpetrate. I wonder what God thinks of a culture that, that kills millions of babies in the womb. The shirt's on our backs. The whole system is set up so that we as individuals can't trace where those clothes come from, but a distressing number come from sweatshops in Bangladesh where poor people and sometimes even children are working almost as slaves. I wonder what God feels about whole cultures then, that thoughtlessly perpetrate injustices on other people. You see, the real God, the real God of, of justice and righteousness and holiness and compassion cannot help but be angry. Does God ever get angry at his church? A few years ago, I was in Istanbul. There is a big building called Hagia Sophia in in, uh, Istanbul. It was built in, I think, about the 5th century AD, and for 400 years, 400 years, it was the biggest building in the world, and it was a church. And it was the center of a great and vibrant Christian culture the Byzantine culture, and it collapsed. The church became a mosque and then became a secular museum. There's a story of culture shift before your very eyes, and Christians in Turkey are now a tiny and persecuted minority. And if you read what the great preachers were saying in the heyday of that Christian culture, when everybody thought it was was absolutely unbeatable, they were exposing sin and corruption within that culture and warning that it could be brought down. Who believed them? But they were right. Now, we must take seriously... The God of justice, the God who has compassion upon the weak and the fatherless, and the God who therefore can be angry. How how do you respond? Well, here's here's some pointers from this chapter in Lamentations, and there's many other things that I'm sure we could bring out. But the first response is silence. Verse ten: The elders of the daughter of Zion sit in the gr- on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Sometimes the, there is nothing to say, only silence and weeping. Verse eleven. My eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where's bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom, who can do anything but cry sometimes. As we engage with these things. And speechlessness. What can I say to you? What can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken you that I may comfort you? There's nothing I can say. For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? And confession, verse 14. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They've not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. But you, but have seen for you for you oracles that are false and misleading. Do you see that there, 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 there was a failure of the leaders of God's people to speak the word of God truly to us, he says. And we simply have to confess, we lived in this naive, optimistic bubble, thinking, oh, we, God will never judge us. An acknowledgement of God's unbreakable covenant, verse 17, the Lord has done what he purposed. He carried out his word, which he commanded long ago, thrown us down without pity made the enemy rejoice. Yes, God had said long ago, if you break my covenant, if you walk away from me, if you pursue injustice, I'm patient and I will wait and I will offer you forgiveness again and again and again, but not forever. One day I will come. And here he is, as, as Israel is destroyed, and he's saying, God, I have to recognize your word is truth. You warned us. There is nothing we can say against you, except weeping again. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Jerusalem. Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street." Do you think that a Christian should have no sorrow? It is not true. Yes, there is great joy and great celebration that comes from knowing Christ and having our sins forgiven in Christ. But the New Testament consistently says there, there is sorrow that goes with that too. It is part of engaging with the real world. One of the shocking places where we see that is, is right at the beginning of Romans chapter 9. If you remember, right at the, at the end of Romans chapter 8, the chapter before, we find Paul getting to this beautiful climax where he, he says there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And then his next sentence, not divided originally by great big chapter heading to suggest that we're going into a new thought. His very next sentence is this. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. What's he going to say? After he's just said that nothing can separate us from the love of God. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Or just a few verses earlier in Romans 8.23. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, he says, what, what does the Spirit do in our hearts? Well, he gives us joy, doesn't he? He gives us insight. He, he, uh, he confirms our relationship with God so that we cry out, Abba, Father to him. There's, there's so many wonderful things that the Spirit does, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. In the real world, in the world that is not the house at Pooh Corner, there is lamenting. I hope you will get along on Monday evenings, at least some of the time. It is not a sub-Christian thing to do, lamenting. It is part of living in the real world. If we do not think that we should at any point be in sorrow, we should get out more how how does this, how does a christian then hold together this this sadness that the apostle talks about great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart and the legitimate joy that christians can and should have how, how do you hold those together the only answer i can give is god gives us larger hearts for those who are not christians it is an... it isn't Etiolated life. It is a, it is a wafer thin, small little world that they live in, where there are just trivial joys and that try to medicate for the, for for, for the for the unhappiness. One of the things that the New Testament says, I think, is, is that God just makes us bigger, and makes our hearts bigger. So that at the same time, we can rejoice in Christ. We can, we can, our hearts can be filled with a, a sense of deep, joyful anticipation of the new creation and our resurrection um, uh, lives. And we can embrace as well the deep sorrow that is associated with living in the real world. We live next door to people who are walking away from Christ and who are destroying themselves now. And if they don't turn around, that will be carried on to completion in hell. Christ wept over Jerusalem as he approached it. and We should weep over a world that is lost to Jesus. We respond then with sorrow. We respond as well with pleading. Verse 20, look, O Lord, and see or consider, as some translations have it. Consider, Lord, the the inhumanity that is unleashed on this world. Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? It's all, it's, it's, Difficult to read it, isn't it? Consider the desecration of all that is holy. Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Consider, Lord, the carnage that is unleashed in this world. In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. Consider the incredible irony of what's going on, Lord. You summoned as if to a festival, verse 22. My terror's on every side. On the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. God's normal thing is to summon people to celebrate. But he says, with the same voice, you summoned me to terror and destruction. Consider that, Lord. Is that really the outcome of this world that you want? I know about your justice, God. I accept that we deserve far worse than we think we do. But consider it, Lord, is that all? That's what he's saying. It's actually the great the great tension, the great cry of the Old Testament. Here is a God, on the one hand, who is absolutely holy and absolutely just, who must interact with his fallen, broken world in his holiness and his justice. And... And that no sin that has ever been committed can go unpunished. And that leads us inexorably towards a terrible conclusion as Israel fails and fails and fails again until finally she goes into exile. The terrible conclusion is that the God of justice and holiness and compassion for the vulnerable must judge those who ignore the plight of the vulnerable, who rebel against him. But God's more than that. He is not less than just, but he is more than just. On the other side is a great commitment of God to save an innumerable throng of people from every tribe and nation and reconcile them to himself. And how is the God of justice going to be also the God of salvation and compassion. That, that, that is the cry that rings through the Old Testament. Consider, Lord, says Lamentations too. What is God's reply to that? Well, there's a clue in verses 15 and 16. "'All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. "'They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem.'" Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We've swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. That is a description of the people scoffing at Jerusalem as she lies in the dust. But it has echoes, anticipatory echoes of another moment. This is Mark chapter 15. All those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believed. That is Jesus. Jesus who was mocked by all those around. Jesus who was separated from every support and every friendship. Jesus who was publicly shamed and hung up to die on a cross. Jesus who shed his blood. Jesus who couldn't die in the arms of his mother like those children. She had to weep from a distance. Why was he doing it? He was doing it because he was, as God the Son, was taking on himself the just wrath of God. And as God the Son was paying the penalty that should have been ours. You see, there's a few very important things we need to get straight in our heads as we read Lamentations 2. And the most important of all is... If you are a believer in Christ, God is not going to punish you this way. Because he punished Jesus, his son, that way. If you, are a, if you have put your faith in Jesus, then you do not need to fear the wrath of God. If you have not yet put your faith in Jesus... I, I don't want to scare anyone here. I don't want to be one of those stereotypical preachers that, that um, tries to terrify people into the kingdom. But we must engage with the truth. And the truth is that we have an absolutely just and holy God. There is no sin in all of history that will not go unpunished. Either it is punished in Jesus or it is punished in us. The Bible rightly tells us to flee to Jesus, to seek his forgiveness because who can escape the reality in Lamentations 2? The wrath of God is very serious. Now God is not going to punish you if you put your faith in Jesus. There's more than that as well. Though trouble will come to you. The Bible makes it very plain that Christians do not escape trouble, and Christians therefore do not escape personal sorrow. That for Christians, it does not come to us as punishment. It is only God's discipline. God disciplines those he loves, says Hebrews, as a father disciplines a son. It only comes to do you good, to conform you to the likeness of Jesus. We cannot escape this broken world. But we are not being punished by God. Whatever our sins are here, if you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus is not going to punish you, either now or in eternity. He simply wants to make you whole. And you know... Perhaps the most important thing to take from Lamentations 2 is that in the Bible you find the God who can cope with the real world. It is not an escape from reality to come in here. It is an engagement with reality. And when we go out into that real world, The truths of the Bible will help us. In the aftermath of the First World War, after millions had been killed in the carnage, a man called Edward Schlito surveyed his world and wrote a poem, Jesus of the Scars. It ends like this. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Let's pray.